You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hello, my name is Marshall Fritz. I'm with the Advocates for Self-Government, a tax-exempt educational organization headquartered in Fresno, California. The purpose of the Advocates is to present the freedom philosophy honestly and persuasively so that opinion leaders can encounter these ideas, evaluate them, and when appropriate, embrace the ideals of self-government. To achieve this purpose, we teach communication and presentation skills to those people who are most deeply committed to the freedom philosophy, the libertarians. The presentation you are about to hear is part of the Communicator Workshop presented to 51 libertarians at the Advocates' third annual summit conference held in Los Angeles, November 13, 14, and 15, 1987. This workshop was designed and presented by David Brigland, Philip Mitchell, and Marshall Fritz. It is copyrighted. Should you wish to make copies as personal gifts for your friends, you hereby have the permission of the authors. For commercial use, please write to us at 5533 East Swift, Fresno, California, 93727. And now, let's go to the live recording at the beautiful Pacifica Hotel. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Here it is. It's 7.30. It's November the 13th, 1987. We're in the splendid Pacifica Hotel in Los Angeles, well, actually, Culver City, California, at the third annual Advocates for Self-Government Summit Meeting. And this year, our theme is the Communicator Workshop. One thing that you might care to know, just to, to have in your back of your mind, is that uh, David Berglund, Philip Mitchell, and I, Marshall Fritz, are planning to take this on the road next spring. And if you think that this would be a nifty thing for people in your area to be able to come to and would like to see, uh, see the, us bring the communicator workshop to your, your area, please talk to us sometime during the program so that we can uh, begin to talk to you and know that you'd be interested and tell you how we're going to be making those arrangements. So, And we will be condensing it to a day-and-a-half session, you know, like a Friday night and all-day Saturday or a Saturday night and all day Sunday, and that should be big fun. When I was headed out on my last trip, uh, speaking tour, it occurred to me that I have been now on the road, in fact I added up recently 610, 611 days in the five years since I chose to go full time in the libertarian movement. In January of 83, I decided to do that, and since then, I've spent the equivalent almost now of two years on the road, mostly one-night stands, and uh, uh, one wag said, uh, Marshall, you're earning a PhD in sofa beds, and it uh, seems to be the case. So, and I would like to report to you something that has become very apparent, in fact, I've met something over 4,000 libertarians that are now in my phone book and have had uh, medium to extensive conversations with probably something over 1,000 libertarians now, had some private time with. And it's become very apparent that most libertarians live their lives without a vision of victory for their ideas. And I don't know how that's very much fun. I don't know that at all. It seems to me that that's got to be an unfortunate or even a dismal kind of set of attitudes. There's two prevalent 
visions that people seem to have, visions that do not hold victory, but they are their visions. The one vision is the circle the wagons mentality, and that mentality, you know, see how long the ammo holds out? In that mentality, they expect to be slaughtered, but they want to, you know, bother the people on their way down, or something like that. This is particularly prevalent among conservatives who, you know, want to hold on to whatever liberty there is that they see uh, for at least, uh, you know, until they die or maybe until their ch through their children's uh, lifetime. But there's, a, uh, uh, but there's a definite dismal kind of a view. Slightly better, but not greatly improved, is the flickering flame mentality. John, it's our job to keep the flickering flame of liberty alive, to pass it on to the next generation so that they can keep the flickering flame alive and pass it, it's kind of like Amway without growth. <laughs> right. this, this remnant mentality. I had the opportunity a few years ago to be a Soccer referee, uh, not referee, I did a lot of refereeing, but I did a soccer announcing. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the big game, kind of a thing, professional soccer announcing. So I got to know a, uh, a coach, Bob Ridley, and he told me one time that the difference between a good soccer player and a world-class soccer player is that a world-class soccer player has a vision of that ball going into the goal. He can see it going into the goal 20 seconds from now, two minutes from now, 20 minutes from now, but he can see that ball going in the goal. And there may be some other player that's better on the ball and kicking and, you know, pound for pound, in a sense, cannot play the person, but the world-class player has vision. And I believe that if we are to become a world-class movement, a successful ideological revolution, that it is going to be because we, who are members now, start to develop a vision of victory for our ideas. I think it's crucial. I got a lot of stuff for sale out there. You can get tapes, you can get books, you can get t-shirts, you can get, you know, we expected to have the mugs. How many of you have seen the world's smallest political, we got quizzes, we got the world's smallest political quiz. If you ever see one smaller, don't tell me. I'm living in paradise thinking that this is great. We've shipped about 100,000 of these little quizzes so far. We've got it now coming out on a coffee mug. Can you imagine having one of those? Isn't that great? Anyway, got lots of, of training materials and supplies and the kitsch of liberty uh, available. But I don't have visions for sale. I think each of us needs to construct her or his own vision of victory. I'll share with you a couple of mine, and then we're going to get on with it, and I'll leave you to when you're driving home tonight or wafting off to sleep to start thinking of your own vision of victory. But I'll, I'll give you a couple of mine. All right. 25 years from now. In fact, let's do a little test. Add 25 years to your current age. Do it in your head. <laughs> All right. Now, how many of us think that we have a pretty good shot at being alive when we're that age? May I see a show of hands? How many of us? All right. 
Pretty. Oh, Robbie, hold that hand up high. <laughs> I've only been 96. <laughs> Two years, Robbie celebrates his 50th wedding anniversary. And the interesting thing is, is that his wife's mother-in-law, that is Robbie's mom, expects to be there. She is really spry. And uh, uh, that's going to be something, right? I will. Get a telegram from the president if there is one for you, gentlemen. <laughs> All right. I think we can be victorious in 25 years. And I think that 25 years from tonight, we may be at the largest ballroom in Los Angeles attending a reunion of the Southern California uh, aspect of the libertarian movement. There'll be about 18,000 people coming to that reception, that reunion. Huh? No, it's, it's the largest ballroom in Los Angeles. It doesn't happen to be this ballroom, which is, oh, third or fourth. Century Plaza, 18,000 people. Why is it a reunion and not a meeting? By the way, are we still having monthly meetings in the libertarian movement then? No. It's a reunion. Why is it a reunion? Why is it a reunion? Think about it. Did the abolitionists have monthly meetings in the 1870s? Huh? No, why not? They lived too far away. <laughs> We're going to try it over on this side of the room, all right? <laughs> Did the abolitionists have monthly meetings in the 1870s? No, they were... Hell no! Okay, thank you. Why not? Because they had achieved their objective. They had won. Now, did that mean that they never got around? I mean, they, you know, the slave, personal slavery, private uh, uh, soul tenancy slavery was gone, and the abolitionists <laughs> had won, right? So they didn't have a movement left anymore. Now, did that mean that they never saw each other again? No, they went to reunions. Have a beer, a couple of pops, talk about the good old days when it seemed impossible. Remember back in the 1830s and the 1840s, and everybody laughed at us? Bring the slaves. Ha 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 well, Come on, get practical. We gotta have cotton. You want people to run around naked? <laughs> kind of a prevert are you? You know? Yeah. But they had won. So there they are in the 1870s. They're having their reunion. Here we are, 25 years from tonight. Hi, Greg. Largest ballroom in Los Angeles. 18,000 people. The reception. Robbie's doing just great. He's in his walker. <laughs> All right. Now he's staying out of the wheelchair, okay? I'm saying, walk on the other side of me. You know I'm deaf on that ear, okay? And as we're walking to the big ballroom there for our reunion, we pass a little room. It's about this size, and we look inside to see who's meeting in there. We're just curious. <laughs> now, why do we chuckle, huh? Why do we chuckle? You don't know why we chuckle? What? <laughs> Why would you tell a flat earth society? Why those silly people didn't hear about an important ideological revolution that we had four or five hundred years ago, right? They're not with it. And we have a little chuckle at their expense. We keep on walking. We see an even smaller room, oh, about half the size of this one. We peek inside. And there at the Jane Fonda Society, governs best, governs most, is their motto. We see an aging Tom Hayden talking to a, a cast of three 
would-be Idi Amin's, FDR's, LBJ's, would-be what's, you know, people who wish there, there was a, a state they could get their hands on. They can't be self-governors, so they've chosen to be others' governors. They can't run their own lives. They want to run yours. All right? And oh, they wish there was a state to get a hold of so that they could govern you. See, my vision is we can go to the 100% position. That's my goal. If I get a blood transfusion, I want it to be 100% pure. Not some halfway between too pure and too impure, but all the way. And that's the way I view this old thing called statism. Out darn spot. But that's not the main point tonight. The point is tonight is can we achieve a major ideological victory in that amount of time? And I believe we can. I'd like to give you some ideas on how that might come about. Little review. What are we going to be talking about tonight? Well, we're going to talk about our goal for a second. We've already done that, as a matter of fact. But I think it's a true statement that for every libertarian, when we become a libertarian, when we get these notions, when they settle into place, when they come into focus, when we have that aha experience, instantly we have a goal that we want to live in a society where pert near everybody has the same opinion. That's the goal that's out there for us. David Briglin once said that it seems to be to go take about 30 seconds for a new libertarian to go from the aha experience to lapel grabbing. All right? Now, I was confused for 40 years, but I can straighten you out in an hour. Kind of an attitude. Joe Coberly, a member of the board of directors of a number of uh, major libertarian organizations, told me once that when he first became a libertarian, in the next six months, he lost every friend he had ever had. <laughs> By the way, somebody has just come into the room who's kind of special. We have with us tonight the organizer of the Future of Freedom Conference. May I present... Dagny Sharon, all right. That's right. Well, I'm trying to get through the room so you can hear it on the other side of the partition. So let's talk about a strategy of how we can get from where we are now to there. What we're going to be talking about tonight is the whole notion of idea transfer and how an idea starts and then goes out to a larger, larger, and ever larger number of people until finally, whoo, somehow gets to everybody. So we're going to look at that process and see what we can learn. And what we can learn, we're going to look at it in two levels. One, the kind of great big picture, and then I'm going to try to narrow it down to a fairly specific but still theoretical picture. Sunday, we will be completing this presentation, if you will, or the other half of it, where I'll give very specific suggestions on what you can do next week when you get home. What you could start on, if you will, Sunday evening. So we're going to do some theoretical stuff now, but it's going to set the stage for some very specific and practical suggestions that you can take home with you. We're going to discuss tactics, and we're going to discuss tactics that are appropriate now versus tactics that will be appropriate then. When is then? then is at the time of the surge. I expect that this ideological revolution will be completed with a kind of a surge, and we will define the surge. We'll look at some examples from the past.
Let's get started. I believe we are talking about what may be the largest ideological revolution in the history of the human race. And that's what we are embarked upon. And if we're going to have a sense of perspective and understand this process better, I think it behooves us to look at some other large ideological revolutions that our species has come through and see how we did last time. Okay, right? And then we can look at this ours a little bit more. So let's look at three behind us type ideological revolutions. The first one, and one we know about from the history books, is the ending of the concept of the divine right of kings. Now, wasn't it so, Rick, that a few hundred years ago, the king could come to you and say, Rick, I want both your sons to be my warriors. I want one of your daughters to be a uh, serving gal for the uh, troops. And I'd like to no, make it 20% of your crops to feed these folks. And of course, Rick would say, why are you going to do that, king? And the king would say, because God told me to. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, who wanted to go up against God? That's heavy merchandise. Right? And if God is take, telling the king that he's supposed to do this, you better go along for it, right? For the wrong. And then somehow, 250 years ago or so, some people started thinking that maybe that concept wasn't correct. Maybe there were a better set of concepts, and they left behind the divine right of kings. No longer is a person considered to be born with the right to tell you what to do. Now he has to earn it or steal it. Right? Right. And this is a major ideological revolution to leave this notion, this ancient, long, long notion behind. Another one that we know about, also from the history books, is the ending of chattel slavery. For thousands of years, Men and women thought it was perfectly decent and natural for one person to own another. Why, there were men of the cloth who could point at the good book and say, St. Paul told the slaves to go home, be good. Clearly, God approved slavery. Right? They were preaching that way. They were preaching that way. But somehow, all over, pretty much all over the planet Earth, people somehow questioned and then discarded that notion that one person could own another. And not just with blacks. We pretty much have gotten beyond the notion that a husband can own a wife. Major ideological revolution. A third one is this notion of having computers in your home. Now, Ten years ago, 11 years ago, 1976, I remember scoffing at the notion of people having the computers at home. Now, recognize something here. I had twice been at a leading edge of the computer business. I had had a computer at home as early as 1966, or a terminal. My kids grew up, you know, hey, can I go play on the terminal, Dad? 
kind of a thing. So as seven and eight and ten year olds, they were all used to the computer. So here I am, a leading edge kind of computer guy. And when they first started talking about home computers and Apple and that sort of thing, I scoffed. Oh, you're going to balance your checkbook? How cute. You're going to keep your recipes? Oh, how charming. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, today I keep my recipes. <laughs> on my computer. How many of us in this room have a computer at home? May I see? Oh, my goodness. 68% of the group. How many have two? <laughs> three? <laughs> Do I see three? Do I see four? <laughs> I had to get the five in Denver before Bucky Carr would finally. He'd... Do you have five? You bought it last Saturday <laughs> for Art Rafton in Seattle. We've lived through that ideological revolution. Something that seemed to us as nonsense ten years ago is now accepted. Now, how does it really happen? Well, we're going to take our sociological salami slicer. Wake up. We're going to take our sociological salami slicer. Huh? little ad for the folks in room 1222 that are bringing you all the way from Las Vegas. <laughs> all righty. What we're going to do is we're going to take this, this idea of an idea spreading through society, and we're going to slice it up into three phases. In phase one, we're going to call the, the what are we going to call We're going to call it the discovery phase. Phase two, the education phase, and phase three, the popularization phase. Phase one, the discovery phase, is where an original thinker discovers a new idea. You know, at some point in time, somebody came roaring out of the privy and said, Mildred, the world is round! And she said, what? Round! Look, it explains everything. So there, somebody has that original insight. And that person looks for some abstract thinker. Who cares? You know, maybe Mildred said, oh, who cares? Let's go fishing. Let's do something else, right? And he keeps looking for someone who says, you want to bet? And I say, yeah, I want to bet, the original thinker. And, and old Alan and, and the original thinker, they get into this great big argument. And the original thinker takes him down and says, look at the ships and the way they come in, and they see the tops first and then the bottoms later. Now explain that one, Alan. Huh. He says, never noticed that before. Now there's two. You know, Alan turns to Greg and says, Greg, the world is round. He's looking for another abstract thinker to have an argument with. <laughs> What's the matter, Eric? <laughs> Get close to home? Yep. And in fact, John Stuart Mill helped me out a little bit on this. He said a new idea goes through three phases, ridicule, argument, and adoption. It's my contention that we are in the middle phase now in the education phase. I'll attempt to prove that real quickly here. How many of us in this room have ever been called argumentative? <laughs> all right. Just all of us, right? Except what's his face there? It says, I'll disagree with that. <laughs> Let's look at this a little more closely. Where do these original thinkers get their new ideas? Well, they don't get them out of books. It's against the rules of the new, new idea in the uh, original thinkers union. Best I can tell, they pop into their brains 
through inspiration and pondering. That's there. Bees the heck out of me. Where an original idea comes from. I got some ideas, but I don't know. Okay? Then what do they do? They start talking to these abstract thinkers. And the abstract thinker uses different tools to acquire the new idea. He uses logic and reason and books and lectures. It's Friday night in Los Angeles, California. By almost everybody's standards, one of the most exciting towns in the world. And Friday night, the big fun night of them all, right? Right. And where are you? You've all chosen to attend a lecture on political economy and that kind of stuff. Right? Abstract, and I'm glad you did. I chose to be here too. But we happen to be abstract thinkers in this area. Phase three, the popularization phase, is where the concrete thinkers grab onto the idea. And the point we're making at this point is that the concrete thinkers use different tools to acquire the new ideas. They, they use a different approach to, 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 to evaluate and to adopt the new idea than do the abstract thinkers. Their tools are testimony and osmosis. I'll give you an example. I happen to be a concrete thinker in the area of uh, astrophysics. And in fact, even though my eyes tell me that the sun travels around the earth, I happen to believe that the earth travels around the sun. Now, why do I believe that? It's very simple. My mommy said so. My daddy said so. The World Book Encyclopedia said so. Sister Mary Holy said so in the fourth grade when I completed my studies of astrophysics. <laughs> People that have lied to me about Santa Claus, no youngsters in the room, right? People who had lied to me at one level about Santa Claus, I took as being authority figures, and when they testified that the earth goes around the sun, I believed it, and I still do, even though I, I can't necessarily prove it too well. And osmosis. And it, you just don't hear any songs. Love makes the world go flat. <laughs> Ground. Three-year-olds play with little beach balls that show the, the, the earth, okay? And here's where Grandma lives over on this side. And we live over here. No, they don't fall off, right, in Australia. Okay? But a three-year-old grows up knowing that the earth is round. Never has to battle it out intellectually. It just kind of now gets programmed. It's almost like genetic almost in the territory. Almost. Now let's apply time to this process and see what's happening here. John, do you have a pen? There's three phases. I'm showing time at the bottom of the chart. And then along here, by the way, how many of you know that you can see this in your workbook? And if you want to see it very clearly, good, there you are. Page five. Page five. You can see that I've cleverly drawn the vertical scale as semi-log to impress the technical folk. And what that is, huh? it's called semi-log dropping. And what we have along the 
vertical scales, we're measuring the number of people who have adopted the new idea. We have time coming across the bottom. And the first thing we notice is that phase one, the discovery phase, is always the longest of the three phases. Because it goes from the beginning of time up until the person has the new idea. At that point, phase two starts, and we start reaching the abstract thinkers. We are right now, in my opinion, at about 250,000 libertarians in America. A lot of them can't spell one way or the other. <laughs> I don't happen to like that particular metaphor unless we also are willing to discuss whether the I is italicized and the T is boldface in the word, so uh, I don't know. But. Those that believe in libertarian ideals and use that word about themselves to some degree is my guess. It's around 250,000. The members of the Libertarian Party would be somewhere between six and 10,000, depending on how we want to count that. So when we counted registered libertarians with you know, the state of California, the American Kennel Society, and other places where they go to register, it's uh, probably about 90 to 100,000 uh, know, that have registered themselves that way. So we have about 250,000 libertarians, and the things that the social scientists tell us is that we get into this popularization phase somehow when we reach around, some say, 2% of society. That is, when you've reached 2%, you have enough of the opinion leaders that the idea has taken on a, a, a life of its own almost, and it no longer has to be pampered and nudged and wet-nursed by its, its originators, and in fact, as people say, it is an idea whose... Yeah. And in fact, you notice something interesting? That aspect of information transfer or idea transfer has become popularized, or you couldn't have said that like that. All right? So we all know something about this whole thing already. A funny thing happens, though, on the way to the successful completion of an ideological revolution, when the idea seems to be approaching that point at which its time has come, the people who profit from the status quo, who don't wish to see change because it may cut into their profits, try to figure out how to stop the new idea. And of course, the best way that most people can figure out how to stop a new idea is to kill the people who hold it. Right? Death to the infidels, you know? If you keep thinking the world is round, we've got to kill you. Or whatever it happens to be. So, and their objective, these George III's kinds of mentalities, their objective is to take the ideological revolution on a little bloop, drop. Now, we libertarians are fairly aware that when the government attempts to do X, what happens? Why? <laughs> or at least, not X. <laughs> Frequently the opposite of X. And the same thing happens. When the government starts stomping, when they kill you for your ideas, your son who wasn't that interested, your brother-in-law who didn't even care for you that much, your widow, your mom, all of a sudden, four, five, maybe 15 more people get real excited and become active libertarians. May not read all the fancy books that Dr. Ritchie read, but they're going to be just as active. 
And what happens is, as a reaction to stupid government attempts to squash the new idea, instead of growing in a natural way, the new idea goes through a surge, or it just blows. I'd like to give some examples of surges. Let's look at three. One took place in less than seven months, another one in less than seven days, and one in less than seven hours. Seven months. In January 1776, an Englishman published a little book, a little pamphlet called Common Sense. He was so scared he by pants of his own book, what he'd written, he wouldn't put his name on it. That sold a lot of copies, so in the second edition he did. <laughs> so we know it was Thomas Paine who copped the credit for writing what he wrote. And in fact, they sold 300,000 copies of that little booklet and a population base of 3 million. That would be the equivalent of having 24 million copies of some book today, you know, like Restoring the American Dream. <laughs> to pick a title. <laughs> and for that book to be having no competition from TV, magazines, VCRs. In fact, not even much competition from other books. That thing was the talk of the town. January, February, March, April, May, June, 1776. And in July 1776, over 50 leadership-type people signed their name. 50 opinion leaders, 55, I think, opinion leaders signed their name on a document of treason. One of the great tragedies of the way we teach our children about the American Revolution and about the Declaration of Independence. One of the ways that we drain the life out of what happened in those months is by not teaching them that Thomas Jefferson and John Hancock and Sam Adams and the gang were traitors. That they had discussions. They sat down at dinner and they talked to their wives about where their things were so bad that, that treason was okay. That God himself could both say that this is all right. That's the discussions they had between husband and wife, between brother and brother, and brother and sister, and father and son. People had to talk about this because they had to make decisions as to what to do. Now, we all know there is no such thing as a successful traitor. He's known as the father of his country. And we rob our children of a a whole aspect of that revolution. Seven months. Let's try one in seven days. In fact, all of us in this room got to live through this one. It wasn't even quite two years ago. Wasn't there a time over there in the Philippines when you came to the opinion that Marcos had pretty well uh, won, stolen that election? Wasn't there a time in there that you thought, well, he did it? Weren't you ever of that? Were you of that opinion? You were? Huh? That he had it? Huh? The son of a gun did it. It was a little bit, 
hanging in there, but he did it, right? And then what did Kino do? Well, she called up the local cardinal, Cardinal Sin, and said, hey, card. Oh, wait a minute, I'm a little ahead of myself. A few of the, her troops, or some troops, were loyal to her and went and captured a radio station, right? And they started broadcasting, Marcos, go bye-bye, Marcos, go bye-bye, or some other songs like that. Trying to tell people in the Philippines it was okay for Marcos to leave. And what's a dictator to do? <laughs> huh? Come on, he gets out the dictator manual, and what's he to do? Take the station, right? Right. Get a few crack troops, send them in there, and whoop, we got it back. So he gets his crack troops, and tells them to go. But Aquino is on the phone to the cardinal and says, Hey, card, got an idea. Why don't you get on the radio and tell a million or a million and a half people to go stand in the street and keep the crack troops from bothering our guys? The cardinal says, Hey, that sounds like a heck of a gig. Include me in. And he does it. And a million and a half people. And here come the crack troops. Mom, could you move out of the way, please? Oh, my God, my eighth-grade teacher, I can't shoot her. Huh? I mean, she'll send me to the principal. She was a battle axe then, and in no way I'm going to go up against her with this little puny cannon. They couldn't shoot their way through, could they? And the idea traveled through the Philippines, around the world. It managed to penetrate the beltway itself. The idea that it was okay for Marcos to leave, that, that, that seems to be what needs to be done. And we've all heard of the phone call from Paul Axalt to Marcos. Yeah, hey guy, we'll send in a plane for you, and uh, you know, if you get out now, you would probably take a few pairs of shoes, otherwise, uh, yeah, they're going to string you up, you're going to look like Mussolini. Yeah, gig's over. Because people changed their mind and decided, yeah. Seven days, fewer than seven days. And there's one that some of us lived through and all of us know about. It took less than seven hours. Of what do I speak? Of what do I speak? Pearl Harbor. Whew. 11 a.m., New York time. You go door to door with a little survey. Hi, how many people here in the house want to kill Japanese? <laughs> and the people in the house, why nobody? We're all busy today. I mean, we're planning to wash the dog. Just all tied up, sorry. And what if you'd gone out seven hours later? What if you got out at 6 p.m. New York time? Hi, how many people want to kill Japanese? Well, everybody wants to, but Grandma can't. She's in a wheelchair. Now, I'm not saying it's good to kill Japanese. And I'm certainly not trying to say anything pleasant about FDR. Talk about being prepared for your surge. I don't know how many weeks they've been working on the Day of Infamy speech, but it, it was there. It was ready, right? Go. Now, what I'm talking about is ideas can travel, massive ideas can travel through societies very, very quickly. Given dumb actions by particularly government workers. Now what? The markings on there are deliberate. We'll get to an explanation. This is not some transparency that I forgot to clean off. 
They're there for a reason. We're going to start to narrow our focus. We've been talking about the big picture a little bit, but now we've got to start to narrow our focus to try to get an attitude of what sort of tactics are appropriate for us libertarians today versus the kinds of tactics that we want to be using 20 or 25 years from now whenever the surge happens. And I think that they're, they're very different. It's kind of like surfing. What do you need to do first? Build or buy a surfboard. Then you catch a wave. But first, you get a surfboard. And the process of building a surfboard is a totally different kind of set of actions than riding the wave. And our tactics that we need to do now, five years from now, probably still 10 years from now, 15 and maybe even still 20 years from now, are a different kinds of things than what we need to do at the time of the surge. And I think one of the frustrations that so many libertarians have is that they're out there in the water trying to paddle their surfboard, but they've never built it. Get all wet and get all disappointed. Now, let's look at the difference of what's going on. What we need to do now is to win the minds of men and women. Their minds. At the time of the surge, we're going to need their bodies. Not that you can have the mind today without a body, right? I mean, every one of you brought your carcass along with you tonight, right? Carcasses for liberty. But it's mostly your mind that's here. The time of the surge it will mostly be the bodies. Today, we grow one at a time, two at a time. We, we count our successes. When, you know, if we get thousands, that's so great to have successes in the thousands. But we're growing one person at a time. At the time of the surge, I believe, ladies and gentlemen, that our movement will grow at a million new members per day. That we will go from the 5 million point, that is the 2%, to the 50 million point in conceivably a month and a half. As that idea surges through society. Today, the process of becoming a libertarian is highly dependent upon the intellect for most libertarians. At the time of the surge, it will be primarily an emotional response. And the people who are leading the movement at that time, and it won't be us, it'll be other folks, not because of our age, but because the kind of person who's needed then, will know how to appeal to those emotions. And it's not that we don't have emotions today. We do. How many of us have some emotions about coercion? The IRS, the INS, the FDA, the FTC, the DEA. Right? How many of us have some? Yeah, we have some emotions. Something I learned from Kevin Cullinane. He'll be back. Kevin has heard this presentation. And I said, be sure you're back for David's. And he will be. Something I learned from Kevin Cullinane, the founder of of Freedom Country in Campobello, South Carolina, and the, the inheritor of Bob LaFay's Great Freedom School. It's the difference between reflective and reactive thinking. And I think it helps us to, to know a little bit about the tactics that we need today. I mean, right over to what we are talking about earlier with David's comment about the lapel grabbing. Reactive thinking is thinking that you do without thinking about it where reflective thinking is kind of like pondering, 
um, an example. Let's say I go into uh, Medea. Now, am I going to start to reflect on the nature of pain? No, not if I'm the kind of person who's going to survive on this planet. If that should happen to me, <coughs> it's a reactive thinking process. That afternoon, I may sit there with a, my hand in a bucket of ice water and reflect on the nature of pain. Without pain, I would hurt myself very badly. I would probably kill myself. God, thank you for this good pain that helps me from hurting myself. I appreciate it. I'm trying to be sincere. God, thank you. As I would ponder and reflect on the nature of pain. So there's reactive thinking and reflective thinking. Today, the process of becoming a libertarian, for many of us, is a process that employs a great deal of reflective thinking. Not all of us. Some folks are natural libertarians. They were born that way. You know, we aren't too sure, but they have may have been prenatal uh, libertarians, right? Ticking to get free, right? Oh, yeah, Harry. <laughs> and they, they just, boom, they came out. It was in every corpuscle of their body. How many of us were natural libertarians when we discovered this movement? Our reaction was, where have you been? Show of hands, please. Almost a little over half, 53%. Okay. And how many of us were acquired libertarians. We had to acquire the notions one at a time, the hard way, and get rid of the old ideas. Come on, a little show of hands. Okay, about a third of the group. Yeah. All right. We'll keep it that way. Now, we need to figure out how to get more people to acquire these libertarian ideas, because if we just exhaust ourselves looking for existing libertarians that don't know about us, that's a rather uh, small, finite group. So we need to develop libertarians out of people that just have the possibility, the potential of becoming libertarians, and that entails a great deal of reflective thinking. Now, I'd like to propose an example here of a funny sort of a situation. It is a hypothetical case, and get some reactions from you. What, by the way, tell me some names of some people that you think are really superb one-on-one -on -one communicators on the libertarianism, particularly somebody who's, you know, say in your home area. Who, who do you know that's good? Emmerling, Michael Emmerling, superb. Who's another one? What? Kim Goldsworthy, yes. Bill White, sure, from Northern California. Huh? David Nolan from, uh, from Georgia now. And, right? Who else do we know? Who do you know in your area that's a great libertarian communicator? Dick Body. Okay. All right, we got a whole bunch of people there. Let's take David Nolan as an example. David's fairly well known amongst us libertarians. He's here in the room tonight. He's the the uh, inventor of the self-government chart, aka Nolan chart. <laughs> Pardon? He's changing. He's changing. That's right. Founder, primary founder of the Libertarian Party. And let's say you, in this hypothetical situation, have a choice to make of getting David Nolan in front of, pick some celebrity. Now, the reason all those names are crossed out, we're talking about three hours in private. I used to have Phil Donahue or Gary Trudeau up there. Gary, not Pierre. If you're going to go fishing, you've got to have water.
And then somebody complained about Donahue and somebody else complained about Tudor. So I put Winfrey up there and said, okay, well, yeah, we'll use Oprah Winfrey, okay? And then somebody said, well, they didn't think that she could become a libertarian. So I put Tom Selleck. Somebody didn't want him in the movement, so we had to cross him out. And I get these blasted arguments about which celebrity to get, and that's not the point. So we'll take Oprah tonight as a candidate celebrity, and our choice is, a little hypothetical is, do you choose to get David Nolan in a private, let's say on an airplane next to her, sitting there in an airplane lobby waiting for the airplanes or whatever the heck, but he has an opportunity to have three hours of conversation uninterrupted in pleasant surroundings with Oprah Winfrey, or do you choose to put him on the Johnny Carson show week from Thursday for 15 minutes? What do you choose? So what do you choose? Choose. Speak. Oprah. Oprah. Carson. Carson. Oprah. What? Huh? Ask. Three hours. Oprah. 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 Why? Why, Doctor Willis? Wallace. 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 Tell why Oprah for three hours. So you get into her mind and convince her. Right on. Why else? Somebody else over here said Oprah. Why'd you say Oprah? Yes. Years, her ideas would be more libertarian and would be coming out daily. Hey, John. What they're talking about is time and time. What Cal is saying is that it takes more than 15 minutes to get past the barriers and the preconceived notions and all the rest of the stuff. It takes a little bit of time. And maybe in the first hour she finds that David is a nice guy and a decent sort of person and an enjoyable person to be with. And maybe in the next hour she finds out that he has some good intentions for people that she cares about. Some really good intentions. And maybe in the next hour she finds out he's got some really different ideas to achieve the same thing she wants to achieve. And she gets real curious. And by the time she's getting off the plane with David, she says, what do I do next? And he's saying, well, you could go to the fee for a week, or you go down to Kevin Cullinane or Cato for a week. You could read a book. I could get the advocates to send you an information kit. Right? I think I've got a copy of Restoring the American Dream, and if not, I know a guy who'll mail you one. <laughs> Oprah? <laughs> he all laughed. Bobby Gentry became a libertarian because somebody spotted her in a meeting, sick me on her. I spent 12 hours with that gal, answering her questions and all that sort of a thing, and she is a libertarian. Gave a four-figure contribution or more to the cause. So, you know, they can be had. It's, that's not just in a novel and John Galt goes out and does it in three hours or 30 minutes, however quick he was. But it can be done. Time, Dr. Wallace says, is what it takes and time is what John Graham says to have leverage because for the next 20 years she's going to select the guests on her shows differently and she's going to treat them differently. I understand that this rent control has destroyed housing for the poor and you didn't mean that but isn't that what really happened, sir? <laughs> right? the time of the surge. The fit is hitting the shan. It's 21 years from now, and you've got your choice. Three hours with Oprah Winfrey or 15 minutes on the Johnny Carson geriatric show and David Nolan. Which do you choose? Carson, why? You've got the, you got the, you got the, 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 the numbers leverage now. Yeah. Yeah. Tactics. 
there are implications for us. Now I'd like to make a final point before we close this segment. One of the reasons that libertarians despair of victory is that they know that they acquired the ideas through this logic and reasoning and they've read all these books and everything and they're so smart and the rest of the people just aren't smart enough and they, you know people don't read all the books I give them right and the newsletters with no margins just text they don't seem to read right yeah, it's a shame <laughs> everybody's nodding it's a shame <laughs> or if they do they read hard like a novel And libertarians are just, just uh, despair of victory because these other people won't read. But I say that other people, the people who don't read, the concrete thinkers, can become just as ardent a libertarian as you are. They will arrive at that belief from a different route, but they will hold the idea as strongly as you do, Russ. And I'd like to attempt to prove that now in an odd way. And I'm going to need your cooperation. You have been put in a terrible situation. You are going to be asked a question. If you answer correctly, you will live. And if you answer incorrectly, you will die. Okay? Now, life is a value for this game, so I don't want anybody arguing okay, about that. All right, Life is a value. And, the, and, and you signify yes by standing. So I'm going to ask you to kind of loosen up. Just back your chairs up. Just get ready to stand. Because you're only going to have five seconds to do it, should you decide to stand. Okay, so back your chair up. Get, get ready, okay? You don't know if you're going to stand or not, because you don't know if the answer is to this question. You don't know the question yet. So you don't know if you're going to say yes or no. Does E equal MC squared? 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, 1,005. Okay, stay standing. Stay standing. Okay, now look around a little bit. Okay, now sit back down. Now, next question. Different sort of a question, but how many of us can give a pretty good explanation? Not exactly right, but a pretty good explanation of why it's C squared and not C cubed. Well, those now please stand. Go ahead, stand up. I'm not going to ask you to do it, but who can do it? <laughs> yeah, usually there's a couple of people. Why is it C squared and not C cubed? All right. Mr. MIT, let it be known that David Nolan stood up and is prepared to talk on this subject now. Thank you, David. <laughs> now we have a very special group that we're going to ask to stand. If you stood the first time but weren't able to the second time, please stand and remain standing. Look around the room, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to look at what intelligent-looking people look like, abstract thinkers in the area of political economy, but concrete thinkers in the area of physics. These are people that are willing to die for something they don't understand. <laughs> right? They will risk their life. But they don't. Thank you. Let's give them a hand, all right? Concrete thinkers, one of all. I was standing, by the way. I should tell the uh, radio audience. What? Some of us have just forgotten, says Professor June. Dennis? <laughs> okay. You see, when we're growing by the millions, those new people are going to be different kinds of libertarians than you are. 
They will understand it at a different... Governs best, governs least. Isn't that all there is to it? Do we have to read all those books and those pointy heads do? Come on, let's go! Oh, we will get... Whatever it happens to be, right? Let's go non-violent the heck out of those people! And that's what it's going to take. That's what it's going to be. Now, our job is not to reach those people. Our job in the libertarian, it's like slowing down a big airplane or one of these fast uh, airplanes, the, uh, the, the um, fighter jets. First, there's a little spring that goes whoop, and it kicks out a little parachute about this big, 18 inches across. Now, is it the job of that parachute to slow down the airplane? No. What's the job of that parachute? Pull out the next parachute. And, what's, and that parachute slows down the airplane. We're the little parachute. Now, maybe Mises or somebody smart like that was the spring that kicked, got us going. Who knows, Rand? I don't know who your spring was. But you're part of the little parachute. But it's not your job to take this thing to hundreds of millions. It's your job to take it to the 2%. It's your job to reach the opinion leaders, the teachers, the journalists, the entertainers, the clergy, people that are professional communicators. It's your job to take the libertarian movement from 250,000 to 5 million. That's, you, you divide it out, it's approximately 23 each. Yeah. And we're going to give you 23 years, okay, to get the job done. Right? That's not hard. And it's even easier than that. The first time you get one, you tell him, now you go get 11 more. <laughs> You cut your problem in half, and you can do a little Amway action on this thing. Right? It's not that big a job. And once we've got it to two million, they'll take it. Bobby will write some song. The Laverne and Shirley show will be pro-market, pro-freedom. The L word will be all over the place. It was on Jeopardy the other night. Who all saw it? Jeopardy. Jeopardy's a game on a television. I got a call from a guy in the Eastern time zone. He says, Marshall, you watch Jeopardy tonight. I said, what's that? Well, the toughest question, the last question on the big game, with the 10th question, the, whatever, the $1,000 question, and the final thing, well, the whole thing was on Indians, and the last question was, who was second place in the Libertarian Party nomination this year for President of the United States? And this guy hit the buzzer and said, Russell Means. <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, it is true that we have already started the popularization phase. It overlaps, it happening, and it's also true that there's still original thinking going on. We're going to close real quickly. It's not an important note, but it's funny. How many of us saw the Nolan chart in Doonesbury, January the 16th, 1985? I know one person who did not, David Nolan. Because one week later, I called him on another subject, and I thought I'd pay him a little compliment and, and uh, you know, stroke him a little. So I said, hey, David, how did you like the, the Nolan chart last week in uh, Doonesbury? He said, what? I said, well, you read Doonesbury? Yes. You didn't see it? No was a little too subtle for him. That's right. He was studying C-squared. But I'll give you an example of the popularization phase real quickly here. Doonesbury, 
The situation is that Duke, who has set up a medical school down on the islands, is talking to Dr. Jonata. Dr. Jonata has proposed a heart transplant, a breakthrough. He is going to transplant the heart of a liberal into the body of a conservative. There was a letter to the editor of the Fresno Bee. This is medically infeasible. There's not enough room. Right, Dr. Wallace? That's... <laughs> Duke says, Jonathan, why the hell would you want to stick a liberal ticker into a sick conservative? Well, social engineering has always been a passion of mine, Duke. I love the idea of taking two ideologies, one of them philosophically anemic, the other morally bereft, and by using them together, create a whole new order of political animal. Listen, Sylvia, what I hope to get is a compassionate pragmatist, a man who operates from a hybrid sensibility of enlightened self-interest. Huh? How's that, Hugh? Hot, hot, hot. All right. Now he's got three of the four quadrants described. The liberals ask some problems. The conservatives ask some other problems. The libertarians, hey, we've got some good stuff here. We blend the right side and the left side of the conservatives and liberals. We've got something good. The Duke, the great geneticist that he could have become, okay? ever a cynic, says... What if it backfires? He says, what if it comes out wrong? He says, what if you get the worst traits of both? He says, what if you just get a bigot who likes Brie? Duke is asking, what if you just get a Marxist? <laughs> and Jonathan says, I'll pull the plug. I take pride in my work. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we can win. These folks called the baby boomers are ours in 25 years. They are going to own the newspapers, own the TV stations, be the deans of the business school, be the Catholic bishops. We'll see a pastoral letter that says it's a mortal sin not to be a libertarian. <laughs> right? Well, reach a priest today. You got a bishop tomorrow. Go get him. We can win. Thank you very much for coming tonight. Thank you for listening to our presentation. If you would like a catalog of training tools and materials to help you gain confidence as a communicator of the freedom philosophy, please write or call. You can reach the advocates toll-free at 800-932-1776, or in California, please call 209-292-1776. Or you may write to us at 5533 East Swift, Fresno, California, 93727. All contributions to the advocates are tax-deductible. This recording was made by Jim Turney of Liberty Audio, Richmond, Virginia, and David Robison of the Advocates, Fresno. This is Marshall Fritz, and I'd like to end this tape with a quotation from Bernard Baruch. The ability to express an idea is well nigh as important as the idea itself. Thank you.